0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. After a volatile and busy year for investors, the final few episodes in the Investors podcast series are going to be a bit more relaxed and laid back. This episode features Kanish Chug of ETF Securities. We discussed three of his firm's most popular ETFs, including the Fang Plus ETF, the Tech ETF, and the Gold ETF. Kanish also finds some counterpoints to my concerns around holding gold in a portfolio and provides some examples of ways that it can be used. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Kanish, thanks for taking the time out to join me on the podcast, mate. Mate,
1: no, thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, for those who don't know, we've spoken before on the Australian Finance Podcast, which is our beginner slash intermediate show. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. But, mate, why don't I just throw it over to you to give a bit of an intro to what you do at ETF Securities. Um, I know your role has kind of expanded recently, so I'll let you fill in the blanks.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, so my role at ETF Securities is as head of distribution. So it's basically covering the sales and marketing, you know, supporting and promoting um, the funds that ETF Securities has. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people that may not be aware, you know, ETF Securities has been around since 2003, where what I would look at, as say, is we're one of the more innovative um, ETF providers within the Australian landscape. We launched the world's first physical gold ETF. We were looking to basically what we call is the intelligent alternative um, mm. and, you know, try to either find gaps in the market from an ETF perspective to bring investors choice. Um, or poss- potentially even looking to do things better. So, mm. you know, examples have been our most recent ETFs this year. We launched a FANG ETF, et cetera. So that's where we sit. And um, from our perspective, you know, the ETF market's growing. Um, new investors are coming to the market in 2020. so It's, it's been a big shift, I think, in the investor landscape.
0: Mm. When I looked at the latest farm numbers across the business, I was kind of taken back. I didn't realise um, how big the business has grown. What's it been like for you being on the inside, growing from such a like a, kind of like a startup? I know you've been around for quite a while, but kind of like a startup in terms of personnel to now being a really established player.
1: Well, I think that's been a, a really big shift for, you know, I've been part of the business now for six years mm. and we have had a the gold product, GOLD4 since 2003, but that's been our mainstay. And a lot of people know the product, weren't aware of ETF securities and, For a long time, we were essentially looking at mainly commodities. And we do have the physical metals and silver, platinum, platinum, gold. But there's more to us than that. And in the past five years, we've really worked hard on that. So looking to broaden out into equities, increase our awareness to investors as well. What I I find with ETFs is over the past five, six years, you've seen many new products launch. We now have nearly 212, 215 passive ETFs available for investors in the Australian market. What they don't understand yet is that there's a lot of potential similarities by name, but a lot of differences when you actually open up the bonnet and look underneath. So a lot of work that we like to do is we like to be seen as an ETF consultant for investors, both financial professionals, institutional and mum and dad retail investors as well. We want to make sure they're aware of the differences across the ETF market, It could be fees. It could be exposure. It could be one is hedged, one is unhedged, you know, whatever it may be, that is our job. And that's what we've worked really hard on in the past few years um, to one, grow the team out, grow the product range out, but also educate investors.
0: Mm, For sure. I've noticed that push from you guys uh, most recently Um, in 2020, obviously the big uh, theme for everyone has kind of been obviously COVID, but the implications for investors has been that, you know, we're, Brought forward the adoption curve effectively, so companies that early adopters or um, you know early stage enterprising investors, VCs, etc., were already looking at have now been moved moved you know forefront in sort of limelight. And yeah. um, from your perspective, um, the first ETF that we're looking at, which is the Fang Plus ETF, um, from your perspective, has that probably been one of the most successful from your range?
1: It's been one of the most successful launches we've ever had. Um, so, to give you some context, we the assets under under management. You know, we launched in basically the first week of March, as you know, <laughs> probably one of the lowest points in the market. Uh, we're now at about one hundred and seventy million, I believe, um, under management, and that obviously can move day to day. But, you know, for us, from you know what is nine months, mm-hmm. uh, ten months, um, you know, it's been an amazing journey. I think it was right timing for that product. And you know, you can never pick the timing that that's been the case for mm-hmm. for that investors an ability to take advantage of the market rally. And what we also found is we wanted to launch that fund for a number of reasons. You know, it gives exposure for those that aren't aware. So the Fang ETF, F-A-N-G is the code. It tracks the New York Stock Exchange Fang Plus index. Now as the name suggests it gives exposure to the fang stock so they're very straightforward it's Facebook Amazon Apple Netflix and Google you know you're five but the FANG plus is the plus is important because it beyond goes beyond those Fang names so it looks at Tesla Baidu Alibaba it looks at um, Twitter NVIDIA so these are names that you know are on that cusp of being innovative quality mega cap names and for a lot of investors, they wanted to know, well, how do I just get exposure to that? You know, you can take broad market exposures, whether it's the S and P five hundred, whether it's the Nasdaq one hundred, etc. You can take an active manager who will have these bets on as well. But if you want to take a low cost way to just have these exposures, well, the FANG ETF was a perfect place for it. And in a, it, the fee is thirty five basis points, or zero point three five percent per annum. Mm-hmm. So that gives you some context. You know, that is your only charge from a fund perspective obviously there are some transactional costs etc that you would pay but that's why we wanted to bring it out is it's a cheap alternative way and also it's 10 stocks and mm. we talk about the concentration i did some analysis you know if you look at um the nasdaq 100 index the top 10 make up 55% of that index so you get concentration even from some of the broad indexes this is obviously a bit more concentrated but what it does is it gives you what are the key drivers of the year-to-date performance this year. And I think year-to-date, the FANG ETF or the FANG index returned 75.59%, so nearly close to 76%. Um, wow. The ETF, because we only launched in March, has returned just over 50%. Um, but had we had that from the start of the year, it would have returned 76%, but we obviously we, we launched it first week of March.
0: Mm. So the concentrated exposure, why did you choose to go with 10 stocks um over say you know yeah like a broader a broader suite of products is has that been i mean it seems like it's been received well by advisors or um, direct investors
1: well there's two reasons one is it's offering an alternative choice to what many investors already had available to them so Mm -hmm. they could obviously access the s p 500 that's your 500 by it's not necessarily just market cap i think because Tesla's only just been included and in theory, you would say Tesla should have been included many years ago. Yeah, it's got um,
0: 600 billion um, market cap yeah. for Tesla as I look at this now. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. So there's a few more um, criteria that the S&P 500 had that people aren't aware of. But for a lot of investors, they would say, well, I've got the S&P 500 ETF available to me. Or I can take a NASDAQ 100 um, exposure, or I can look at a, an active manager that, as I said, may have tilts towards some of these names. What we found though were investors wanted to be more overweight and concentrated on these specific names. If I looked at that performance on that year to date, as I mentioned, so that FANG index, FANG plus index that we track in Australian dollar terms has returned 76%. Mm. The NASDAQ 100 index in Australian dollar terms year to date, this is to the end of November for for context has returned 35.2%. The S&P 500, 8.9%. And the lowly ASX 200 of the Australian market, 0.2%. So um, for a lot of investors, what they may say is, well, I, wanted, I want the, the key drivers of of the rally. I want the key drivers of the performance. And what you actually find is these are the mega cap names. These are now moved beyond just being sort of growth names and startups, and that's what a lot of people get confused about. They see an Apple or they see a Facebook. You look at some of those revenue um, you know, that these companies are earning, um, mm. Amazon has used COVID, you know, in the best way possible to expand
0: mm.
1: rather than shutting down flights, they're buying more airplanes to be able to deliver more, mm. you know, their revenues from an Amazon subscription mm. revenue is now sitting at about 6.6 billion for the third quarter of 2020. Now that's up from 1.5 billion in the Q3 2016. So over four years, you're seeing nearly a quadrupling of mm. just revenue from their, just their subscription. So, you know, you find these are moving beyond that. They're, they're what you could call the new 21st century industrials in a lot of ways. They're part and parcel of what we do on a day-to-day basis. You know, we need these names, you know, that we rely upon them in a lot of ways, not just in ways that we think you look at um, Amazon with their cloud software and their cloud servicing. Mm. So AWS, um, Amazon Web Services. It's one of the largest cloud servicing sort of companies uh, Subsidiaries or companies around the world. So, from that perspective, you generally find that investors wanted this as a core holding or as an enhanced core holding, above and beyond just buying a broad hundred stocks or five hundred stocks. This is really what they were after.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating ETF because it also has um, the the liquidity uh, filter in the in the security selection. So, for people that don't know, there are you know obviously there's a market cap filter to get considered for the portfolio, but then there's the liquidity filter. Why was that brought in?
1: So there's a number of reasons. Obviously, with a lot of ETFs, you want essentially to have certain liquidity criteria to ensure that the ETF is can be traded efficiently and investors can buy buy into and sell out of that particular product. So what you will find with a lot of equity ETFs is there's those liquidity filters. These filters are slightly higher benchmarked for this particular index. And the reason being is what the view is, is to look at the growth drivers and the innovative companies and quality names. So that's really what they wanted to try to identify there from that perspective. Hmm. We get a lot of questions in terms of the 10 names, you know, why isn't Microsoft in there? And what I would like to say on that, because it's, it's a question we get, and Microsoft's not in there for the main reason being is that It was seen as being more of a traditional technology company and hadn't had the innovation behind it for a number of years. So so this index has been around for close to six years now, and these 10 names have been pretty much the stable 10 names in the Mm -hmm. the index. Microsoft has never yet featured in there. It's on the radar of the index committee, and they do consider it because they are looking to move into, you know, other revenue sources outside of just your, your traditional hardware. You know, we know Microsoft is doing a lot of work in the cloud servicing um, area. So there, this is what I would say is this could potentially be broader than these 10 names and it could include companies like Microsoft. You know, if we look at what Disney's trying to do with their streaming platform. So these, are, these companies are at the leading edge of their particular peer group. And that is the important part. Mm
0: -hmm. yeah it's uh, like i said it's it's a i guess an etf that's caught the imagination of a lot of investors and for the ease of use to get that exposure um but given that it's got 10 names in it would you say it's better suited to a tactical or a core position for people
1: i would say depending on your risk profile so very much for those investors that are have a long-term view that are very much on that growth tilt. You would all, you could even say it is, and even at the balance perspective, if they've, depending upon your risk profile, you could sit it in there as a core um, within your portfolio. Mm-hmm. But you may want to use it tactically, depending upon how you're constructing your portfolio. If you're looking at saying, I have the S&P 500, but I want to overweight into these growth companies and these growth Industries and what and these megatrends essentially. So, we, we talk about megatrends in, in, in the sense of you're investing for the future and what the future will hold. These 10 companies capture all main megatrends from artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, robotics, cloud computing, e commerce. So, these 10 names in one quick way. Gives you the complete mega trend, so that's why I'd say, depending on the investor, we have seen financial professionals use it as a core holding for growth investors. We have seen financial professionals and, and and retail investors use it as a tactical as well to go overweight, because obviously, as I said, you know the weights, if you were to just take a broad index, may not be there for some of these names.
0: Mm. So the next ETF, can I show- we want to talk about is the gold etf um and it's your largest etf by assets under management you 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 emailed me because you know i have quite strong views on gold (laughs) (laughs) and you emailed me a few few weeks ago and you said how about we talk about this and um i was like oh maybe that's better over a beer than over a podcast but we figured I was chatting to Nicola and she says, you don't want to do it. It's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a fun topic. So this is a very polarizing thing, right? And I'm going to just add at the outset here that the gold ETF, GOLD has been in our subscription services. It actually has been um, the preferred gold exposure for quite a while now. And it still is. And um, that's just because, you know, there are many features about it, which I'm sure you'll get to, but um, so I want to, I want to make that clear at the outset that if, I was going towards a gold allocation. This is my preferred exposure. So I want to be clear about that. (laughs) Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and I'm going to throw some questions at you. And then I'm sure you get these all the time. So you'll be able to feel them pretty easily. And then um, we'll just just go from there. So um, I'll start with one that not necessarily something that I cling to, but a lot of investors here in Australia think about, which is the income or the absence of income for, for a gold product. You know we have franking credits, dividend yields off the charts here in Australia. What is your counterpoint to people who say that there's no yield, yield on gold?
1: So I think from you know, from the outset as well, the questions that you've raised and the concerns that you've raised and that you and I spoke about on email, I think they're valid in the sense that these are questions we get on a regular basis from investors. So they, we need we want to address it. You know, we see ourselves as one of the the experts in the gold field given we launched the world's first gold ETF with the aspect of yield what you find is yes it is 100 percent true a physical gold etf will not give you any income what we are trying to do is we're trying to give you a pure exposure to the movement of the price of gold unhedged as well so we have 26 tons i worked it out the other day um currently of gold that sits in a vault allocated to the fund allocated to investors it's very safe it can be redeemed for the metal it gathers dust there is no income attached to it a lot of Australian investors I would say prior to probably 2019 um, because we did see a bit of a move were questioning why would I ever look at gold it doesn't give me any income I prefer to buy a bond ETF or a fi- or, or some form of fixed income exposure I prefer to buy a dividend stock that pays, pays me an income gold has a unique place in a portfolio as a defensive alternative so that's where the key point there is what you found was as fixed income and equities the correlation between both started to be go in sync with each other so as equity markets start to move you saw essentially fixed income move in a similar way yield started to come down you saw you know a lot of easing from f- central banks You know, so there is no real place for investors to say, well, where can I get my income from? The traditional place would have been bonds. That wasn't the case, you know, with yields coming down and real yields even more so. So as basically, if you had a bond that pays you 1% over one year and say you invested $1,000 or $100, for example, you know, that 1%, you get a dollar at the end of the year. Now, if inflation moves also, that $1 is worth less than 1%. So the real yield is actually less than what the actual yield is. So, what you found is as real yields were rising, you saw basically investors going, Well, interest rates are coming down, inflation's going up. What can I do? I, I need to park my money somewhere. So, there's an opportunity cost that we find with investors. And that is if interest rates are low, And they have been this year considerably low and they're low for long is what the perception is well i'm not going to be looking at fixed income now i could go down the path and say well let me just pile into equities there's a risk involved in that we've seen that this year with the volatility that's occurred we've seen that this year with a number of dividend stocks not paying a dividend so what can i do i don't i can't sit it in cash cash is not paying me much anyway so i need to put my money somewhere and what you found is gold was a great source as a defensive hedge to inflation, but also to the equity market volatility. So there is never a perfect hedge to inflation, but gold has done a very stable job, and historically has done that. So that's why we saw investors looking at gold, even though it doesn't pay an income. And what we found this year was, and last year as well, as people started to see volatility in the markets, they sort of were considering, well, I need to be a bit defensive. I want to diversify. We, we always talk about that idea of diversification. You know, one of my, one of my um, colleagues uh, the other day said, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. So it's a proverb that we use all the time. And that's what it is. We don't want to essentially have all our eggs in one basket. We don't want everything to be in equities, because if that's the case, there's a risk that we may our portfolios may lose um, from that perspective. So you want to have diversification and gold gives you an uncorrelated asset and therefore provides you diversification.
0: Yeah, the, The defensive piece has been the most puzzling for me and for our team recently. Like if duration on most bond funds is off the charts, so you can step sideways or a little bit further up the risk curve to maybe something more like hybrids or, something of that nature but it, the complexity also goes up with that and there's also more risk in that. Um what about then, you know, this is something that kind of Buffett talks about a lot. Um and even uh Jack Bogle um you know, they say that there's no intrinsic value of gold. You can't value it you base the valuation of you know stocks on dividend yields or earnings yields, bonds on coupons. How do you, how do you respond to that?
1: So there are a number of drivers of gold price. Um there was, a, there was a, One of the best quotes I've seen, and I want to, I want to get, say it exactly as it is, is the best way to think of gold is as a non-yielding currency with a special trait. The only way to print it is to pull it out of the earth at a great cost. Um, and that's what it is, is there's a finite supply. So when you think about the movement of gold, there are certain drivers in that. You're talking about the supply and demand aspect, and that comes in from the real yield and the inflation argument. The move from an investment perspective. So, ETFs investments has had an impact on the gold price as you've started to see more investors come into it. And that's been more of a modern trait than it has been historically, because that access to gold as an investment tool has really been opened up in the past 15, 16 years since we launched that gold ETF. You've seen the mining supply. You've seen also the impact that the US dollar will have as well. So, you have a number of different drivers of the gold price these all input into a wider model what i would say to investors is gold should never be a 20 percent, 30 percent, unless you're very very buried and you're a bit of a gold bug in your portfolio what we generally seen this year is definitely people have been overweight gold within their portfolios because they've taken it as a tactical tilt given what's happened in markets given what's happening with central banks and monetary policy so what we have seen this year is They've used it in that tactical way. What we're now starting to see is investors at the most highest professional sense start to move it from a tactical allocation to a strategic allocation. They've understood its place in a portfolio. It's your insurance in your portfolio. And that's really the key point there.
0: So when you, you're talking to those, um, like say they're large investors, family offices, high net worths, um, institutions, etc., what type of allocations are they putting in there their, uh strategic asset allocation. So you mentioned 20% there is kind of, you know, something that maybe it would be a, for someone that's very bearish, but how about for these large institutional investors? What are they looking at?
1: What we're generally seeing is between 25 to 5% Yeah, the right. portfolio. Yeah, Okay. So the whole idea of 60-40, you know, we, we, I think the 60-40 portfolio may not, it's not dead, but it needs to be rethought. Because the idea is that I'm just going to take 40% and park it into cash and fixed income. Well, that's that no, can't be the case. You need to have that alternative pool in there. And that's where we see gold sit. So gold can be in there within that alternative pool. I've seen, you know, some professional investors have it as much as 10 to 15% in their portfolios. Um, again, tactical positioning based on their views of what they're seeing in the markets and where they see gold moving. You see a lot of, I guess, you know, projections on the gold price. And we've had this sort of plateauing out of the price at the moment. It's sitting in about that 18, 18. 1850 US dollar mark right now. One key point there is it is an allocation within your portfolio, but it's a complement to the rest of your portfolio. One of our our chairman, Graham Tuckwell, who obviously originated um, and created the, the structure of GLD, he once said, you essentially want gold to not do anything. For your portfolio you don't want it to to be positive or negative in a lot of ways it's it potentially fits it if it is negative then that's a positive for your entire portfolio because you have the rest of your portfolio doing well which is why i say what we are seeing is that as a strategic allocation it's between two to five percent if you're much more defensive you can go up to ten percent but what that's sort of the the sweet spot is probably that five percent level um as i said it's a complement to your other defensive tools you mentioned going further up the risk curve in terms of hybrids etc and yes there's complexity to those but that's what you do see if people are wanting yield and wanting to go to high yield bond strategies or active managers or hybrids you're looking further down the risk up the risk curve in terms of equities Um, again so for those that are wanting that income it's a complement to those strategies and as an uncorrelated asset and historically it has been uncorrelated to treasuries it's been uncorrelated to equity markets it's a good place to be in having a small allocation it's your insurance
0: yeah it's funny because as i said that that it's very challenging on the defensive side it's not just you know um, private investors who think about that there are so many challenges from a large institutional um, perspective as well how about then you know i'm imagining a retiree or near retiree someone you know um, late 50s early 60s thinking um, I'm worried you know I want to keep my purchasing power this opportunity costs in the next one to three years do you see the gold plays kind of that seek uh, minimizing that sequencing risk so that you know jumping across in that transition to retirement period is that I'd imagine from a financial planning background that's where I'd be thinking there's quite ef- quite a bit of efficacy in something like this
1: well what I do see is as uh, I said if it's An ability to bring down the volatility in returns in your portfolio, that's a positive to me. So, if you're smoothing out that volatility, that is what gold is designed to do historically. And that's what you want it to do. Now, it's not going to be a large part of your allocation, especially if you're looking at it from an ETF perspective. Very liquid for an investor to say, Well, I now want to go underweight my 5% to 2.5%, and I want to cash out, I want to liquidate that holding, and I want to reallocate that to another part of, of, of their portfolio they can easily do that so for, for us that's what we would generally want to see we also get this question and we, we didn't we haven't sort of discussed it before but we get this question of why not just go gold miners you know and I, i'm going to get that same exposure to gold the gold price and yes and no what you generally find is you're buying a gold miner for that growth or growth aspect of it. you're buying it for the mining the equity exposure very different characteristics to a physical gold exposure so the characteristics are two completely different things you in theory could have both because a gold mining stock has other inputs that you know drive its price it's the the operation of the mine you know uh, do they do they actually have do they hit any um setbacks for example the management of the company there are many other aspects outside of the gold price that will drive up and down the gold mining stocks and they're generally going to be also more volatile again. So if you're using cold as a defensive tool, a gold mining stock is not that. And so that's the key point there is it is an asset class on its own. It's an investment exposure on its own. It shouldn't be compared to like comparing apples to oranges. You can't do that. You know, it is standalone.
0: It's, it's, it's been quite a, a important distinction to make this year, because obviously Warren Buffett, who so many investors follow bought bought shares in a gold miner and then people misconstrued that to think he's investing in gold which is a different thing as you mentioned uh, um okay then so how about then when people come to you and they say you know what about when well, we didn't talk about this off air in that email exchange but how about if they say you know well what about things like crypto assets or unlisted assets do you ever get that like people alternative
1: defensive are they thinking that as well yeah so we're starting to see a lot more interest in bitcoin bitcoin's had a really good rally this year um i think it's new. Hit records highs, and you know I saw the Winklevoss twins, who obviously are big Bitcoin bulls, talking about you know Bitcoin hitting fifty thousand, you know from I think I think it might be about fifteen or twenty thousand per Bitcoin in US dollar terms at the moment. What I would say to people that are looking at Bitcoin versus gold, again, different characteristics of what you're looking for. Gold is a safe haven play. It is. One of, as I said, it's not the perfect hedge, but it's one of the best ways to hedge against tail risk and inflation. So for those investors saying, "Well, I'm going to take Bitcoin," Bitcoin has a speculative nature to it. it there's still a bit of a few questions around Bitcoin, and I'm not an expert in the, in that particular cryptocurrency space myself. So probably want to say that. But you're looking at using Bitcoin as a defensive safe haven play. Well, that's it's not that it is a speculative play and there may be a place in your portfolio for that. But gold, as I said, is a defensive alternative allocation within your portfolio.
0: Mm. I think the thing for most um, people that um, think about Bitcoin versus gold is that it just doesn't have the um, the track record yet. I'm just looking at the latest price as we record this around 19,000 us dollars for Bitcoin. So yeah, indeed, it's actually near its all time high. I didn't know that. So there you yeah. go. <laughs> um, Okay, so we've talked about some of the, the big characteristics of gold. Obviously, um, it's been pretty impressive. In terms of an ETF for your business, I, I would I be correct in saying it had about $800 million of flows this year, so
1: into the fund? That's correct, yeah. So we've had nearly $800 million of flow um, with the price move as well. So year-to-date gold price in Australian dollar terms has moved by about 10%. And what we've seen there is... Now the, the gold ETF that we have has hit records in terms of its its size, so it's over two billion dollars. It took us about 15 years to get to one billion, and about 18 months to get to two billion. So, um, a very quick jump in that space.
0: Wow, that's uh, it's funny how things move and and compound like that. Okay, so let's step away from gold then. Um, let's t- have a look at another ETF, and this is. We're currently constructing. We're revamping our model portfolios on the ETF front, and one of the ETFs that we've looked at is the tech ETF TECH, uh, pretty intuitive ticker code. A uh, bit different to bit different to Fang, and um, I think there's something unique about this which people miss. Um, so I'm quite happy to just throw it over to you and explain that distinction uh, between it and most other, I guess, generic technology ETFs.
1: So uh, we, just off air before we started recording this, I was talking to you around the fact that you know was that a barbecue on the weekend? speaking to some friends and they were saying, I want to get exposure to tech. And my next question normally is, one, I'm not a financial planner, so probably need to say that. But then my second question was, what do you mean by tech? Do you mean FANG or do you mean tech, technology stocks? Because there is a clear distinction. So we talked about our FANG ETF earlier, which Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, Tesla, Twitter, et cetera. Majority of those names actually are in that index are not technology names. There are only two that would classify as technology sector companies, and that's Apple and NVIDIA. Reason being is Facebook, Google, are seen as media and communication stocks. Now, why is that? It's based on the revenue and where they generate revenue. And for those two companies, for example, they generate revenue from ads. And so what happened about two, three years ago was S&P and a number of the, it's called the GICS, sector classification, its probably the one, one of the most widely used sector classifications and each particular index manager has their own view on, on sector classifications, et cetera, but they're all fairly in line with each other. They rethought how sectors needed to be defined because there's obviously big moves in companies and how they're generating revenue and just as the world has moved on, there needs to be that reclassification. So previously, a Facebook was a technology name, a Google was a technology name. But they very quickly worked out that if they're generating revenue, majority of their revenue from ads, it can't be a technology name. So they redefined in sector, which is media and communication. So that's where they sit. And Amazon still generates most of its revenue from people buying goods and serve goods on their platform. So they're not a they're a website, but essentially they're a consumer discretionary stock. So again, it's a consumer stock, it's not a technology player. Now that may change as Amazon's cloud services picks up and becomes a majority part of its revenue. But at this point, still, it's a consumer name. A Tesla, another example, that's not a technology name, even though they're quite innovative in the technology that they're producing, but they are an automobile company. So for us, when we talk to investors, we say, if you want technology, you can get pure sector play. And that is what the tech ETF provides. And that's the code is T-E-C-H. And it looks at global developed markets technology sector from Morningstar's index family. So it uses the Morningstar's methodology of their motor methodology, which is really neat. But what it is is it's 31 names at the moment. It can be anywhere from 25 to 50 names. It's got a range, but it's 31 stocks at the moment. And all these companies are pure technology sector names. So companies in there like Salesforce or Microsoft or Adobe, and I've got a few others, but they cover the hardware and the software side of technology.
0: Mm. It's funny that you bring up Tesla, because we were talking off air about this. Um, it's still cut uh, characterizes automobile companies. And one of the big concerns that people had um, and still have is that it, you know, the addressable market for electronic vehicles or electric vehicles. sorry, and uh, you know, the, the price point it's, you know, it's not, it doesn't make sense, but it, it kind of goes beyond that. But that's another story for next time. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll come up to that when we get to a different ETF. Um, so how about then, one of the questions that I get, and this is more on like the philosophy of investing, is how does Morningstar define a moat? And then how does tech allocate to that?
1: Sure. So what Morningstar's moat methodology, it's, it's very well known, but moat essentially looks at a competitive advantage of a stock to its peer group. So they have three ratings of moat and that is a wide moat a narrow moat and a no moat now a wide moat identifies a stock that has 20 years plus competitive advantage looking forward by by the way so 20 years looking forward competitive advantage amongst its peer group a narrow moat is 10 to 20 years and a zero moat or no moat is 0 to 10 years there are five sources that they've identified of economic moat so they're things like intangible assets so intangible asset is things like you know, your brand identity, intellectual property, licenses, et cetera, things that will keep a competitor at bay, your network effect. And that's really important because the value of a good and service increases as more consumers use that good and service. Now, Apple is currently not in this particular ETF because of its valuation screen that this index has, and we can touch on that in a minute. But it was previously, and the reason why it was was because Apple is seen as having the network effect, so you buy an Apple phone, you're more likely to buy the Apple Watch, the iPad, etc. Samsung is the Android platform. What that means is you don't necessarily need a Samsung device, you can buy HTC, HTC, etc. So that is a key point there, the network effect. Another driver of the moat ratings or, you know, sources is your switching costs. So that comes from you know, keeping customers from switching from one product to another. So that's all about, you know, the training and the implementation costs. So, you know, having a high barrier for a consumer to switch from that product to service. And then your last two are things like your cost advantage and your efficient scale. So again, undercutting competition, enhancing profitability. So they're your five sources. And what Morningstar does is they have a team of research analysts around the world you know, just looking at technology sector, there's analysts based in the US and Europe and Australia that are technology analysts, research analysts. So this is something that as an ETF, we're very lucky that we can license an index from a company that essentially has this this sort of dual identity of being what could be seen as an active strategy because it's using fundamental research in defining a universe. And so that's what Morningstar do. Using their analysts, they define one, what is classified as technology sector? So we talked about how Facebook's not in there, et cetera. So they've got an identification of just companies that are classified within the technology sector. Within that, they research those companies and they apply moat rating to them. And with this ETF, you are the company either has to have a narrow or a wide moat rating to even be considered for this particular index. So it has to be in that space. So a company like a Microsoft is seen as having a wide moat. You know, it's got the network effect. It's got the intangible asset. You know, it's got the efficient scale. It's got the, you know, it, it probably ticks a number of these boxes. And the reason being is also from a perspective of valuation. There is a valuation screen within this index as well, which is why Apple's not in there at the moment.
0: Mm. It's an interesting one because um, I think people are so familiar with Morningstar's methodology and the five buckets and then how they kind of um, define those based on returns on invested capital versus the cost of capital. Um, it's one that we consider a lot here. And um, our approach is a little bit different insofar as we give companies effectively a quality score. And depending on the quality score, it depends where they're, you know, how how much conviction we have in them and how wide we believe their motor competitive events to be. And then that informs our cost of capital and our research. So it's a, it's a really interesting one. And I think um, the, the the tech etf kind of drills into that and provides exposure to like you said you're effectively crowdsourcing um from qualified equity analysts um how about then the valuation component um how does it how does the the filter apply because we've got two sub portfolios within the one portfolio and then they're rebalanced every six months yes Um, that's right do, do most companies fall out because of the the
1: valuation Uh, So combination is, so you see a number of companies like an Apple will fall out because of that valuation screen. So essentially it has to be at that fair value that Morningstar has, so again, utilizing that Morningstar's research they have a fair value um, price, it essentially has to be within that range. What you see is you see companies falling out because of that fair value screen. We have companies falling out because of the moat rating or the moat methodology as well. We also have companies not necessarily from a liquidity aspect. So there is a liquidity screen as well, a liquidity cap. We generally have companies not really f- falling out because of that. We also have a country cap as well. Now, whenever you think of technology, you think US. And that's why whenever people say, I'm gonna buy a technology index, I'm gonna buy the NASDAQ 100, which is just US listed names. It is goes beyond the US. Now, not to say that this tech ETF is predominantly US focused You it know, has nearly 80, 85% exposure to US stocks, but we have the ability to go beyond that. And that's really important. So we have names currently in there from Japan, from South Korea, from Europe. We've had Australian names in there like realestate.com or car sales or Zero, has featured in this particular ETF. So we may even have that in the future. We've had that consistently in the past. It's currently not in the portfolio at the moment. So that's another important aspect is, It's a global developed markets technology sector. So you're looking beyond that. And it's, as I said, 31 names. So within that space, the other aspect of this is the equal weighting, which is really important. So with our future present range is what we call it. And that's where our tech and our FANG ETF sits alongside the the robo ETF, ACDC and our biotech ETF cure. They're all equally weighted. And that's important because we as a provider or from an index management perspective, have realized that you don't, we don't want investors, we don't know the winner or loser. And we don't also want to pick the biggest company by size and just have them being the highest weighting. Because you, what you then find is a bit of a momentum trap. You know, As the companies do well, the size basically keeps driving their weight in the portfolio. So for these thematics and sectors, what we wanted to do is equally weight those portfolios. And so for all of our five ETFs in some way, they've got an equal weight methodology. And that's the same process here with this particular ETF. It has an equal weight methodology. And that means that you've balanced out and diversified across those 31 names. And you may have an ETF a stock within that that does very well, which is positive because then it provides a positive performance. But then you've protected yourself. You don't have the larger stock that potentially can be quite volatile that drives the performance of ETF. Yeah, so the way I see this being used is very much across multiple risk profiles because we talk about technology again. Technology shouldn't be seen as just a pure growth play. They're investing for the future, but a lot of these names, you know, in a way, technology as a sector is is quite industrial now. You know, as we talked about it earlier, it, it, you could say is technology should it be seen in, in that industrial view? We need it, we use it, and these are the names that are really the best quality, the best value from that perspective. So what we find is the tech ETF and the tech as a sector exposure being used across different risk profiles, no longer just for growth and high growth investors, it is a tactical satellite com, um, tilt. So where they may have their broad market exposure, their broad exposure to, you know, a core allocation, this is a satellite to provide that sector play. And that's how we see it being used. But as I said, we see it being used now, not only just in the growth and high growth, but across the different risk profiles. Mm,
0: okay, great. Um, Kanish, that takes us through the three ETFs. Thanks for taking the time to join me on the program today, mate.
1: No, thanks for having me on.